0: Happy Mother's Day. Last year, I was, uh, I can't remember where I was teaching or what, but I decided to proceed with the message, and it ended up being something about satanic opposition, (laughs) and I thought, that's a very strange Mother's Day message, granted, but I thought, honestly, that's probably, um, it's probably a little more relevant to, you know, the kinds of warfare moms have to go through than... You know, just some frilly message, so yeah. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, John chapter 6. So join with me in a word of prayer. We love you, Lord. We're so grateful already to have gathered as the body of Christ and to enjoy fellowship in the Spirit and to be able to worship you uh, in song in spirit and in truth. And I am grateful now that we can turn our attention to the Word of God And I pray that you would please speak to us through your word. That you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. That you would soften our hearts, Lord, so that uh, we can perceive spiritual truth. And uh, Lord, you know all of our deepest needs and confusions and desires and frustrations. And Lord, I believe that you're able to minister to us through your word. Your word is all sufficient. And so we thank you for that. And so I pray that you would move the teaching of the word today that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would receive much honor and glory, and that Christ would be exalted here today. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, over the last couple of weeks, we have been considering the issue of testing. You know that by now, and in the last two sermons, uh, we, we looked specifically at test with the disciples. Jesus was testing his disciples. And you may recall that the first test was, uh, can Jesus make a way where there does not appear to be a way? And obviously, yes, he can. We saw him do that in an extraordinary way. I'm sure we have all experienced that in our lives. I'm sure we are in a position, many of us right now, where we're waiting to see Jesus do something to make a way when there does not appear to be a way. We come to realize and learn that Jesus can do a, an awful lot with a little, he can do a lot with a little. If we would just give to him our time, our talents, our resources, uh, as small as we may think they are, God can, uh, Jesus can do an awful lot with that. And then we saw that Jesus is absolutely worthy of trust in any and every situation. In the midst of the most difficult, darkest, most painful, confusing, frustrating of circumstances, he is faithful. Amen. Amen. He's worthy of trust and praise. So that's kind of what we have been considering over the last couple of weeks. And I would say really the issue of testing continues on throughout the the remainder of this chapter. It's a very long chapter, 72 verses, 71, 72 verses, something like that. And this week, as we move forward in the chapter, we're going to see Jesus, his attention goes from his disciples to the crowd. To this crowd that has been following him from place to place. And uh, the testing continues, and I would say in, in a large way what Jesus does is reveals the unbelief in this crowd. He's going to reveal to them that ultimately they are still very much in a place of disbelief, unbelief in who he is. And so there will be, there are more things even than that that, uh, that will come up today, but I think that's kind of what is happening now because at the end of this chapter, unfortunately, the majority of the people, what? They turn away. They turn away. It says The crowd says that it was just the sayings of Jesus was more than they could bear, more than they could handle, and they, they skedaddled. Right? And so uh, and it was left with the 12. And so anyways, testing and revealing unbelief. And so I would say if I wanted to call this anything, it would be check your heart. You know, Lord, check our hearts. Reveal to us anything in our hearts that is not pleasing to you, that there's any unbelief in our hearts, there's anything that needs to go, then Lord, show us, help us to repent of it, cleanse it, purify us. Well, with that, we are also in one of the first of the seven I am statements in the gospel of John. You've, Heard me make mention of this before, and I'm sure many of us are aware of what these are. Now, the Gospel of John is pretty unique. It's a unique book. There are four Gospels. Those are the accounts of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. But the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are what are called the synoptic Gospels. That is because they are very similar in nature. And so that is why they are called synoptic Gospels. John, however, was written much later than those three, and it is 93% new information, information that was not covered in the first three, because by this point, all of that is assumed to be well understood. And so the Gospel of John is a treasure trove to us, because it is very unique from the other Gospels. And he really, his chief aim is to highlight the deity of Christ, that Jesus is in fact god God in the flesh, God incarnate. So Matthew portrays for us Jesus as the king. He's the Messiah. He is the long-awaited, anointed one foretold in the Old Testament. Mark portrays Jesus as the servant, the servant of all. He says, I did not come to uh, be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Luke portrays the humanity of Christ, the Son of Man, the one who came to die in our place as a representative of mankind. And then John portrays Jesus as God, the God-man. And what's interesting, when you put all of those together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you have is the servant king and the God-man. It's really fascinating how the scriptures come together like that. And so, here we are in the Gospel of John, and he is bringing some new content to To light for us regarding the person of Jesus Christ and he's really emphasizing his deity So you have these seven different passages that begin with this little phrase I am Jesus says I am the bread of life. That's what we're going to look at today In chapter 8 he says I am the light of the world In chapter 10 he says I am the door in the same chapter he says I am the good shepherd in chapter 11 he says i am the resurrection and the life in chapter 14 he says i am the way the truth and the life and then in chapter 15 he says i am the vine now this is very significant each one of those statements is very profound and packed with significance but what is the significance of this little phrase i am i am well this goes all the way back to exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush remember that familiar with that story Moses was out there shepherding and he saw this bush and it was on fire but the bush itself was not being consumed by the flame so he approached and a voice began to speak to him from the bush It said take your shoes off for where you stand is holy ground it was the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses from the burning bush and uh, he commissions Moses to go to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh That he would set God's people free from the bondage in Egypt. So in verse 13 of Exodus 3, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them that the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said thus you shall say to the children of israel i am has sent you to me has sent me to you excuse me so this name that that god he designates this is my name i am that's very fascinating it's very profound the idea there is that he is the self-existent one the eternal one he is outside of time and creation he is the uncreated one he is totally independent from all things, he, he doesn't rely upon anything to be who he is. And so that is um, his, his self-existence. Some people, theologians, use the word aseity for my, my Bible students in here, A-S-E-I-T-Y. You know, we, we rely on many things to sustain ourselves. We need, we have to go outside of ourselves to get these things. We need water, obviously. We need air. We need food. We need relationships, obviously, right? We long for relationship. Truth, To go out, we have to go outside of ourselves for truth that is not within us, contrary to popular spiritual belief. And so God is the only being who has life in himself and truth in himself and has no need of anyone And so he says, I am who I am, the eternally self existent one. Now that's deep. That's a mind bending statement. So when Jesus says, I am, they know what he's saying, they know what he means by that. He is claiming to be God, God in the flesh, and we understand him to be the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead. If there's any question or doubt as to what Jesus means by this, we can just look at John chapter 8 and verse 56. Jesus was dealing with the religious leaders and he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now they wanted to pick up stones to kill him at that point. Why? Because they understood exactly what he was saying. They knew what he meant when he said that. He was claiming to be God, and that was an offense punishable by death, unless it was legitimate, and we know that with Jesus it absolutely was. So I say all this to say that every time Jesus employs this, this phrase and this statement, I am the bread of life, this is packed with all kinds of significance and so whatever follows the i am jesus is truly qualified to be when jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life it's because he is the i am he can say that about himself when he says that he is the way the truth and the life he can make that statement because he is the i am because he is god in the flesh you understand tracking what i'm saying and so there's really two very significant things going on when he says this, when he says, I am, and then whatever follows. He's claiming to be something that no one else in this world could possibly be because he alone is God. It's amazing, outstanding. And so that's what we're going to see today. And as I said before, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And so this really ties back to the feeding of the 5,000, uh that's going to come up in our text today. You remember that Jesus fed the 5000? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And I had said I it, I have a hard time in my mind picturing how what that would have looked like. You know, the the expanding of the loaves and the fish and then then feeding just thousands and thousands of people. And um I think now in my mind I may have worked out kind of how Jesus would have gone about doing this. Uh he has amazing creative abilities. And so, can we uh, media team. Just throw, throw this up here real, real quick. That's the world's biggest sandwich, 7,000 pounds. <laughs> 7,000 pounds. Well, at least that was the world's biggest sandwich. Maybe, it, maybe the record has since been broken. And so, uh, yeah, lots of folks are fixing to break bread off of that right there. Can we go to the other picture? Just to kind of put it in perspective there again. That is a gigantic sandwich. And so I just imagine that's what Jesus did. He just said, "Give, give me that bread." Bam! And you got a seven thousand pound sandwich, and they're like, "Break bread with me," and they were just throwing down, you know, throwing down. Okay. All right, Pastor Dan just doubled over in his seat right here. All right, just trying to mix it up a little bit. Okay. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get into our text. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 6, and we're picking up in verse 22. And this, these first few verses here really kind of serve as a transition point from the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water and to uh, the, the exchange that Jesus is going to have with the crowd. And so I would uh, label these uh, 22 through 25 as uh, the confused crowd searching diligently for Jesus. That's That's what we see here. So let's read that together. Uh, Verse 22, it says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats, and they came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, in the New King James Version, this is a little uh, confusing, the way this is worded. I feel like the ESV makes it a little more clear, but let me just unpack this a little bit so we know jesus fed the multitude miraculously it was this incredible sign and they sought to make him king by force remember that well jesus fled to a mountain alone he escaped the crowd and then his disciples departed by boat well later that night we know the story jesus came to them by walking on the water it was about it was the fourth watch of the night between three and six in the morning well the following day The crowd thought that Jesus was still there. There was only one boat, and then it was gone, and they knew that the disciples left without Jesus, so they're expecting that Jesus is still going to be there, and much to their surprise, Jesus is not. He's gone, and they're very confused as to how this could be. Well, more boats by this point have arrived from Tiberias, we are told. And so the crowd boards these boats and they press on in the direction that the disciples had gone. And they actually catch up to Jesus. They arrive to where Jesus is at. They make their way there. And uh, they say, Man, how in the world did you get here? When did you come? And they, of course, they had no clue. That would have blown their minds had they even known what had transpired. So understandably, they are altogether surprised and lost uh, as to how Jesus made it from point A to point B. But you know what what is amazing to me about this crowd is, man, they are going hard after Jesus. And I can appreciate this. I can appreciate the level of uh, zeal and diligence that they are that they are showing here in their pursuit of Jesus. I could use a little bit more of that in my life. Amen. Can you relate with me? And so I I appreciate that, you know, but Jesus, he kind of sees through it. In fact, he sees very well through it. And so Jesus is going to address their motives. They come to him and say, Lord, how did you get here? Rabbi, how did you get here? How do we know when? And he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't answer their question at all. He goes right to the heart of their motives. And so with that, point number two, Jesus reveals and challenges the motives of these seekers. That's what he does. They come with this question, and Jesus pushes right past that and Shows them what's actually going on in their hearts, and then he challenges them. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you that you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So Jesus knows their true motives and he graciously exposes them. That's what God does. He tests the hearts, he tests our hearts. To show us what's really in there. To expose it. To bring it to the top. But not so that he can just point his finger at us and say, look at you, loser. He doesn't do that. That's what the accuser does. It's what Satan seeks to do. But God brings that stuff to the top and then he, he cleanses us of that. He refines us. He purifies us. And I love that. So I see the grace of God in this as I see Jesus dealing with this really unbelieving crowd. Well, there's a new dynamic to this crowd now. We know that originally we had the sign seekers, the ones that were seeing all the things, the miracles that Jesus was doing. And so they're just following him from place to place because they want to see more of that. Another magic trick, Jesus. So there's that crowd. But now we, we have with us these political opportunists, right? They're like, okay, this guy's the king. He's the one. He's going to break the the shackles of Rome. We're going to force him to be a king. Remember, they tried to do that, and so Jesus departed from their midst. Well, now I would say we have another group present, and this would be, I don't know if materialist would be the right way to describe them, but Jesus says, you're here because you ate the food and you were filled. You ate the loaves and you had your fill, and now you want more of that. Now you're chasing me because you want more of that. And so we have quite the mix here. And we're told later in the chapter that Jesus is at a synagogue here now. So undoubtedly there are also religious folks that have now joined the party. And so there's just a wide range of people with very different uh, perspectives and reasons for being here. And Jesus is dealing with this crowd. Jesus said that you are not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves. That's interesting they saw the sign that Jesus did we know that they saw the miracle they saw the miracle they wanted to make him king because of it right well what Jesus is saying is you failed to understand the significance of it you didn't see the sign remember I said that the reason it uses the word sign is because it's intended to communicate something Jesus doesn't just do miracles to wow people there's something very special very significant going on there and he says, you guys failed to see what, what's really going on here. And you're, you're pursuing me for, for all the wrong reasons. Now, I'm not hating on them for that. And Jesus is going to explain the significance of the sign itself. But he says at this point, you're coming after me for the wrong reason. You ate the loaves and were filled. You misunderstood the significance of the sign. And so the people were seeking hard after Jesus. They were doing the right thing, but you know what? They were doing it for the wrong reason. Doing it for the wrong reason, and you know, that's an that's an easy thing for us to get caught up in. It really is. Um, I've talked about this before, and I don't want to belabor it. But in this day and age, you know, we're 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 pretty comfortable as a society. We have, we have, you know, our needs met. We're good. We're very self-sufficient and dependent. And, uh, you know, people, people try to share the gospel, try to share Jesus, and they tend to respond with, I don't need that. That's just a crutch. You know, I'm good. And so people then try to dress up the message and say, well, do you really want to experience purpose in life? Do you really want to experience meaning? Do you want to finally be satisfied and fulfilled? And yes, everybody wants that. That's what everybody wants in their lives. And so I hear so many people say they just believe that they were created for big things, you know, and, and I, I would just say that that's really ingrained in the culture that we live in, especially in this day and age. And so people sell Jesus to that end. But I will say that's coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons entirely. Now, I think for most of the people in this room, that's not really an issue. I mean, we have harped on that so many times. I don't think that uh, anybody's coming here Uh, thinking that that's, that's, you know, what they should be expecting, but it's subtle. It's subtle. We do live in a time where people pose Jesus as the way to get your best life, the way to get your best life, and if things do not go well for us, if something happens that we do not like or we are caused any kind of inconvenience or discomfort, we get mad at God. We get mad at God, and we think, God, why? I serve you. I'm faithful. I honor you. I live for you. Why? Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that we have some kind of expectation that we have placed on Jesus. We may, by and large, understand why we have come to him, and that's all well and good, but it's subtle how these things can creep in. Now, Jesus uses all kinds of things to draw us to himself. I'm not saying that everybody comes into the faith understanding these kinds of things. Uh, You know, I struggled with uh, a life of addiction and and crime. That was my background. That was my childhood. In many ways, that was my upbringing. And so I went to a faith-based rehab when I was 21 years old, and I came to faith in Christ there. And that was what Jesus used to draw me to himself. And I didn't understand all these things, all these deep biblical truths. I just knew that I had wrecked my life and that it was, you know, irreparable. There wasn't anything I could do about it, and I had proven I'm, I can't even lead my own life. This is what I'm going to get. This is this is the best that I can do with my life. This was like, Jesus, I believe you can do better than this, and so, you know, if you will take my wreck of a life and make it something, I'll, I'll follow you, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my life, and it was just as simple as that and I bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus and I didn't have any radical experience there I just the first thought that crossed my mind is well I guess I should stop cussing or something you know maybe maybe that's step number 1 I'll just try to clean up my language And now now I'm off and running, you know, and we're reading our Bible, and they're like, turn to Proverbs chapter and verse, and I'm like, I don't know even what that means. And I'm scrambling through my Bible trying to figure this out, and and on it went. There was the journey. But over time, Jesus begins to reveal these things to us. He begins to reveal to us the real, true, and best reasons for following him. Amen? So He doesn't turn us away because we don't understand these things. He reveals these things to us. He brings it to the top, and He shows us the better way. Amen? Praise Him, praise Him. So let's look at verse 27 together. Jesus says to them, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. So, Jesus said, you guys are exerting a lot of energy pursuing physical and temporal goods. He said, instead, they ought to pursue the better things, the spiritual and eternal goods. I'm sure that they're pretty confused on this at this point. You know, the reality is physical food sustains life temporarily. Um, Physical food sustains life temporarily as important as it is, but spiritual food gives life eternally. Amen and amen. And so Jesus says, this is what you need. This is what you must pursue. Now, Jesus assured them that he was qualified to make such a claim. He said, you need to pursue, you need to go after that which endures to everlasting life, and I'll give it to you. Jesus said, the Son of Man will give it to you. And he says this based on the grounds that God the Father has set his seal on him. What does that mean? That means that God himself has certified, authenticated, yes, I started to say (laughs) authenticated, authenticated his Son through these very signs. Jesus is demonstrating to them that he is who he says that he is and that he can give them the things that he says he can give them God the Father has testified to the truth of His ability, to His authority. God Himself has set His seal on Him, bearing witness and testifying to the validity of His very claims. So Jesus said not to work for the bread that grows old and moldy. That's what He's saying. That's, That's moldy bread. It perishes. Instead, you need to work for, labor for, that which endures to eternal life. This is another issue that that we got to watch out for. Um, Many times in Christianity, we can get so caught up with physical needs. Physical needs are good. They are important. And we should seek to try to alleviate the pain and the need and the hunger of those around the world who are uh, struggling and suffering as they are. But that's not the main goal. That is not the main thing. So this is an error in missions, and it's an error even right here in our own backyard. We can make that the priority. You know, in times past, that was labeled the social gospel. We we just need to meet the needs. You know, the message is good, but what we really need to do is, is eradicate world hunger. And so these things should work hand in hand, right? James talks about that very thing, and John but the main thing is the gospel message, the gospel truth. And we cannot get it twisted. And we have to watch out for that. And that, in a lot of ways, is, is the issue with social justice now. And there are some people who have gone so far as to say, I didn't understand the gospel till I understood social justice. And that, that, is, that is all bad. And what that is, is that's putting all the emphasis on... on social and political structure and making that really the emphasis and all of the existing structures are bad and what we're really pushing for is equality of outcome and then we need to tear down all the existing structures so that we can have fairness and equality for all well what does that have to do with the gospel of jesus christ what does that have to do with the salvation of souls and that's really the issue that's the that's the the argument now In the world where the gospel goes and people are changed, the society, the culture is changed for the better. It's amazing what the gospel does when it gets a hold of a person. It's amazing what the gospel does to a society, to a culture, when it becomes the pervasive force in that culture. And so that's what we must go after. That's what we need. We need the truth of Jesus Christ. He alone can give us that. So what are we laboring for in life? What are the things to which we are giving all of our energy and all of our effort? Are we laboring for that which endures to eternal life or for that which perishes? Now obviously Jesus is talking about salvation here. And there are plenty of people who they are living purely for the things of this world. The things that will perish. The things that will not follow them into the next life. They need to labor for that which endures to eternal life. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must believe on the Son. Amen? Because everything that we are working so hard for down here, everything that we are sacrificing our lives away for down here, it will all pass away. It will belong to somebody else one day. And so Jesus says, be careful. Labor for the things that endure to eternal life. Now, as believers, are we kind of caught up in that same trap? We have trusted Christ, but still all of our labor, all of our energy, all of our efforts, all of our passions and desires, all of our resources are going purely towards earthly things, things that will perish. And Jesus said that they would. He said that we need to be storing up treasure in heaven where the rust cannot destroy, where the moth cannot eat, where the the thief cannot steal, right? Everything down here, it's going to perish. It's going to fade. So are we... Are we working for, laboring for that which endures? You know, those kinds of things that we pursue in this life, they're, most of the time, they're very good things. Nothing wrong with it. We should have those kinds of pursuits. Uh, we, you know, we should enjoy those things. But if it is to the neglect of the more weightier things, if it's to the neglect of spiritual things, then there's a problem there. We have to watch out. So check your heart. I think the Lord would would put his finger on that and say, how are you doing? Are you laboring for the things purely that are going to pass away? Or are you laboring for the things that are going to endure for eternal life? Things that amount to heavenly reward and blessing. Well, look at verse 28 with me. Then he said to them, what shall then they said to him what shall we do that we may work the works of god jesus answered and said to them this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he sent that's amazing jesus has been using the language of laboring or working to receive from god and the people were very accustomed to this this is how they understood relating to god it was through works right religious systems and rituals and feasts and and sacrifices and so on and so forth and so they reply what work must we work to work the works of god right what do we got to do then you say we need to be laboring we need to be working for the things of god hey well we we know what that's all about so just tell us the works and we'll do it and jesus says something so revolutionary here he says here's the work of god that you believe in Him whom He sent. Now, that's like, wait, what, is, what? Wait a second. You said that we need to be laboring for the things that endure to eternal life, and we say to you, so what is the work that we must do? And you say, believe? I'm sure that did throw them off a little bit. I love this. See, that's, that is the glory of the gospel. Because the problem is, we cannot work the works of God. We can't work the works of God. We can try the works of God, the law of God. It is good and it is glorious. But we cannot keep God's law because we are not good. We are not glorious. He alone is good and glorious and we have fallen short of His glorious standard. And so that's bad news. That's bad news for all of us. And that's what makes the gospel such good news. Because the good news is is that Jesus did the very thing that no one in this world could ever do. He alone kept God's glorious standards perfectly at every single point without sinning at at any moment or time. And then he took the death that we deserve for transgressing against a holy God and a good God. He took that upon himself on the cross where he died in our place as God poured out his holy wrath on his one and only son. He said, it is finished. He died. He was buried. He rose again from the grave just like He said He would. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And now all we have to do is believe. Believe in the One. Believe upon the One who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's the work of God. Amen? Amen. That's a work I can do. That's the work we can do, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit, man. When, you, when you're stirred up, when God is calling and drawing you and you hear this message, you know it's too good not to believe. You must believe. If you haven't believed on the name of Jesus Christ, today is the day, amen? amen. Call upon his name. Trust Jesus. Stop trying to work because your works don't work. As I said before, good behavior ain't nobody's savior, all right? You need to repent and believe believe in the son believe in jesus christ now the reality is another problem that we face is that many believers don't live in this reality we're saved by grace and now we think we got to keep ourselves in that place by doing good works right that uh now it's up to me that's that's bad news that is not good news You know, God saves us by grace and he keeps us by grace. I am kept today the same way that I came in. I'm believing. I'm believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. If you were to ask me how do I know that I'm saved, I would say that. What's the assurance of my salvation? I'm believing in Jesus Christ who died and rose again on my behalf. Following him, trusting him, trusting his works. He alone is the one who can say my works work." His works worked, and they're still working, and I'm still trusting. Most unbelievers, they don't understand this logic. We live in a world where all religious constructs are based around works. Every, every ism out there it has something to do with my good works outweighing my bad works, so that hopefully, maybe, one day, I will get in. That's all bad. That's all bad, and that just goes to show what's in the human heart. We have to earn our way in. We have to earn our way in. And this is contrary to all of that. So this is radical. This is revolutionary. And you know what? Jesus said he would give it. Jesus said, believe and I give it to you. It's a gift. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. Jesus said, the Son of Man will give you this bread. Hallelujah. So are we resting in or are we working for the gift of God? Because Jesus says, believe and I will give. Believe and I will give. Now, are we, are we resting in that today? Are we rejoicing in, celebrating in the fact that it is finished, that Christ has given us this bread, this eternal life? Or are we still somehow trying to work for it? You know, most of us in here probably aren't getting up in the morning and going through the Old Testament and saying, okay, these are the laws I need to keep today, right? We're not, we're probably not doing that. But I think we've all got our own little standards. They may be totally arbitrary or they may have something to do with the Word of God, but we all have our standards that we have created for ourselves, our own little tablet of laws that we are working to keep that if we're honest, we can't ever keep, right? And uh, that's all bad. Now, I'm all for holiness, I'm all for living for our Savior and trying to live a life that is pleasing to Him. But I'm living that life from a place of salvation. I'm saved. I've I've received the gift of God. I've eaten of the bread of life. And for that reason, I want to live for Him. And I can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this should have been glorious news met with an eagerness to believe. But instead, the crowd responds with skepticism. Point number three, the unbelieving crowd challenges Jesus' authority. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, this is absolutely shocking and absurd. Jesus just fed them miraculously that 7,000 pound sandwich the day before. And now they're saying, okay, I hear you. What are you going to do so that we can believe? And, And we're just like, what? But, you know, we're guilty of the same thing if we're honest with ourselves. Now, we knew that they had seen what happened. They were there. They were aware of it. They tried to make him a king. They were so blown away by it. One day later, they're demanding another sign before they'll believe him. You know, how quickly do we forget the great things that our Lord has done? I talked about that last week. We need memorials in our life, memorial stones. Remember um, Samuel, they raised up that rock, Ebenezer, um, and so we sing about that. The Lord is our help. He has helped us up to this very moment. And so, man, sometimes I just get struck with I, I, how quickly do I forget and doubt God in light of the amazing things that he has done in my life. You know, I'm sure we can all relate with that a little bit. On the flip side of this, what this tells me is that some people are never going to be satisfied no matter what they see or hear. Never going to have all their, all their questions answered. That's sad. And so, may we not fall into that camp? With God, it's faith, it's believing. Jesus didn't say, when you get all of your questions answered, and I have proven myself to you perfectly, and done all the magic tricks, and jumped through all the hoops you demand of me, then you know you got it. No, he says, you got to believe. You must believe. So, at some point, folks, you've got to believe. You had to say, I don't, I don't understand all of this. I don't have all my questions answered. But I believe. I believe. And then you spend the rest of your life learning, growing, figuring it out, finding out just how much you really didn't know what you thought you knew, you know? And so that's the journey of the Christian life. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot please Him if you do not simply believe by faith. So you must believe. Now, they had the audacity to invoke Moses and in the manna in the wilderness. They said, you know, you just fed us miraculously yesterday, but, uh, you know, what about Moses? I mean, that's insane to me. Well, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Hallelujah. So Jesus challenges their claim. He says, look, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Now, it was miraculous, the manna. That's pretty amazing. But he said, that's not the true bread from heaven. He says, the Father has now given you the true bread from heaven, because Jesus Christ is the bread from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, I think that this is kind of lost on us a little bit, because we don't understand the significance of bread, culturally, historically even, right? We love bread, most people do, but at the same time, most of us are doing everything in our power not to eat it. Right, we're either gluten free, or you know, keto, or you know, we're just paleo, uh, or we're just in general trying to eat clean, and we're trying to stay away from all that, um, you know. But uh, if we are eating bread, it's very much just a side to the to the the main dish, right? Because we live in a time of decadence. We do. We live in a time of decadence where bread is like. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to work, you know, I'm I'm stay away from that, you know, I'm trying to get chiseled, right? <laughs> and so, uh, sorry, I about messed myself up with that one. Um, <laughs> anyways, you get what I'm saying. But historically, culturally, man, bread was it. I mean, bread equaled life. That was, sus- that was sustenance. You don't have bread, you're starving, and so people understood the significance of bread, and Jesus said, I am the bread. I know you need bread to live, but you need this bread to really live, because this bread that you are eating, it will perish. It will grow old. You need the bread from heaven. And so Jesus expands upon this a little further in John chapter 6, verse 47. I'll just read that. We'll get there in a week or two, but He says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. There it is. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So there it is. He is the bread of life. He is the bread that came down from heaven. He has given his life for the world. He has given his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out on behalf of a lost and dying world. The bread that he gave was his very life, his very flesh. That's the good news, folks. And we've got to believe that. You got to believe that. If you're believing that today it changes everything. It changes everything. So are we enduring? Are we are we laboring for that which perishes or for that which endures to everlasting life? Have you eaten of the bread of life? Are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting him even now for salvation? I want to give us an opportunity to do that if you haven't already. And so if everybody would just bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray. Lord, We love you, and we're so grateful that you are the bread of life. You alone satisfy. You alone give true and eternal, everlasting life. Forgive us when we labor for the things that just really don't matter in in comparison to that. Forgive us when we labor for temporal, physical things to the neglect of the eternal spiritual things. Lord, if there's anybody in this room today who has been laboring for all of these things that perish but have not received the bread of life, Lord, I pray that right now in this very moment you would grant them eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would open their hearts, grant them repentance, and that they would trust and believe. And while everybody's heads are down and eyes are closed. I just want to give you an invitation right now. If you hear that and you say, that's me, I've never trusted Jesus, but I want to believe, I want to invite you just to raise your hand. I see your hand back there. Praise God. If you're saying that, I need that bread of life. I'm hungry. Starving. And I know that all of this down here is only fading away. And one day I'll have to stand before God And I need forgiveness. I want to invite you, raise your hand. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day, now is the time. Anyone else? Okay, let's pray. Father, we love you so much, and I am so grateful for the young man who has expressed his desire to receive of the bread of life. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is mighty to save. Thank you that this brother has heard the gospel message and he believes. He has received the truth. Lord, praise you. You are glorious. You are a God who is mighty to save. We worship you for that. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life. And thank you that we can testify to the fact that we are satisfied in you. That our souls are full. They are filled. And we have life And we have it abundantly in you, Jesus, and we thank you. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.